0: Welcome to Propinquity Press, where we bring people together with the hope that that experience changes the world. We hope you enjoy this selection by author William Spangler Dunning. When I was growing up, I really thought I was from Mars. It was my only explanation of why I was who I was. I was so different from everybody else, and maybe you are a little like me. Later in my life, I wrote a book called Why I'm Not from Mars and a few other stories of why I turned out okay. Simply an attempt to answer that question I think we all have. Why do we turn out the way we did? Why are we who we are? Sit back and listen to my stories of why I turned out okay and why I turned out the way I did, and maybe you can figure out a little bit of why you turned out the way you did. Today's story comes from Chapter 2, A Soul Worth Saving. During my days growing up at Davis Street Christian Church, I experienced things I did not understand with my childhood eyes. Now that I'm older and I can understand the lives of the people who attempted to teach me the stories of Jesus, I find myself yearning to return to the days when the phrase Sunday school brought a smile to my face. Little wooden chairs and the smell of ancient floor wax still calm my heart and help me remember why the world needs to believe in a God. Even now, when life gets too complex to make sense of it, or when the sharp edges of loss aggressively attempt to steal any hope in the future, I find a long sit on the cooling tile steps of my home church can refresh my soul. I can't always return to those steps in a physical way now, so I learn to visit them in the words I write in stories, like this one. So come sit for a while and remember your own story that gives you hope. From the outside, the orange brick building looked a lot like every other church in my town, and since most churches around the world look similar on the outside, it probably looks similar to the church buildings you know in your own hometown. It was built in three stages, with the triangular-shaped building to the west having been constructed first to serve as the sanctuary for the worshiping community, In the beginning, they made do with a few small classrooms around the outside for their Sunday school needs. Then, as the congregation grew stronger and more money was raised, they added a three-level educational wing to the east and connected the two with a small glassed-in breezeway that became the main foyer or entrance to the church. Then, with one more burst of energy and growth, they attached to the north end of the educational wing a basement fellowship hall and a few more classrooms on the main floor. This included the kind of room all churches in the 1970s had to have, a fancy parlor room. By the mid-1980s, when I was first allowed to enter the parlor, the fanciness of the room had tarnished a little, and had begun to look more like most church youth rooms, you know, with outdated and pre-owned furniture that no one wanted anymore. That is probably why we as the youth of the church were even allowed to use the parlor now and then. To my child-like vision, those brick walls were ancient structures built before the dawn of time. It was not until years later that someone pointed out to me the date on the foundation stone, which revealed that the building I thought had been there forever was actually built after I was born. It was about the same time that I learned the difference between church as a building and church as the community of people gathered together to, at their best, change the world with the help of God. I have to admit that I borrowed some of that language from that last sentence from church mission statements that I read on bulletins over the years. Nonetheless, knowing the difference between a building and a church was one of the most important things I learned while walking through the halls of my home church. The church my parents joined shortly after I was born met in a building that had been assembled out of wood in the early part of the 20th century. The peeling paint and cracks in the boards reflected beautifully the endurance and persistent faith of many generations that existed before I even appeared on earth. Many of my Sunday school teachers were the children or even grandchildren of people who had built the original structure. When I look at the pictures of that time, with everyone standing together on enormously long front steps that led to the back of the sanctuary, it always occurs to me that more people must have believed in God, then. It might just be a false perception brought on by the fact that the church building I came to know was three times the size of the original building and had many any more rooms for the people to spread out and therefore look less plentiful. Could even have been that in the new building there simply was not a good uplifting staircase to take a picture. Still, something seemed to be changing in the way humans were being churched together. I think it's very possible that every generation creates its own false perceptions of the way things used to be before they roamed the earth. We have to. As historians, mostly write of large sweeping events that make up our reality. Rarely do historians write detailed accounts of ordinary people and the lives they experience inside the walls of ordinary churches built on every street corner of each small town. When we are young, we don't have the capacity to fully understand that there even were people before we existed, and by the time we are older and desire to know about the past, our lives are full of other things and responsibilities. For all practical purposes, we simply run out of the capacity to care about anything other than the present. So humans are left with less perfect perceptions of the past that must be overheard at potluck dinners family reunions, and even a long car ride to homes of long forgotten relatives. We are really lucky. We pick up a book of stories written about things based on those same relative rumors and broken table conversations with just enough facts thrown in to make it all seem true and believable. Well, congratulations. You are one lucky human. Despite my early dreams to be God's replacement, I, like most other human children, grew up with a very isolated and limited understanding of time and history. I had a decent grasp of the world around me. It's just that the world I knew was never out of my direct sight line and rarely extended more than a few weeks into my past. In general, I think most of us live within those parameters, and the people I came to know at Davis Street Christian Church We're not immune to that phenomenon either. In fact, completely contrary to what it may seem, this limited capacity to live outside the confines of those moments flowing immediately past us created an incredible upside for me growing up in the church. Every member of the church treated me as if I was the most famous, amazing, and wonderful child that had ever lived on the planet. Well, at least this is how I remember perceiving things at the time. I fully believe that I turned out okay because of those mostly above-average Christians at Davis Street Christian Church and the way that they made me feel like I was God's gift to them. Even if I know now that they treated all other children with the same respect and love that they shared with me. As it turns out, The most famous human to be treated in this way by the members of that church walked the halls of the old building during the time when my parents were just teenagers. Her name was Carol, and she just happened to be the minister's daughter and his only child. She was a year younger than my father and two years older than my mother. When Carol was 17, she traveled with her father, Reverend Morris, to a farmhouse outside of Albion, Iowa. Where she witnessed the young 15 year old girl named Reva M. Radigan get married to a 19 year old boy named James E. Dunning. Though Reverend Morris fully blessed the wedding of my parents and became a beloved mentor and pastor for them following the death of their own daughter a few years later, my parents often repeated the concern that he had expressed to them in the ceremony. Because my mother was only 15 and Perhaps because his own daughter was only 17 and present at the wedding, he expressed worries that marrying so young could create challenges to a long marriage. Throughout my childhood, my parents retold this story like a badge of honor, saying, the pastor at our wedding told us that our marriage would not last, but we are still together. At my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, when they were asked the obligatory question about how they were able to stay together for all those years, They jokingly replied, well, the pastor told us that our marriage would never work because we were too young, so we just took it as a challenge. I am sure that they meant it as a thank you to Reverend Morris. As a minister's daughter, and with the extra expectations that go with being an only child, I imagine that Carol was listening closely to her father's words that day at my parents' wedding. I have no way of knowing if the act of witnessing my young teenage parents get married that day affected the path of her life or the person she eventually became in this world. My parents, in all the stories they shared with me about their wedding day, only mention in passing that Carol was present while her father performed the ceremony. There were no home video recorders at the time, so once again I am left as a storyteller to fill in the gaps with my best guess of the truth in the absence of detailed accounts of the facts. However, what I do know for sure is that she grew up in that same church on the corner of Davis Street where the members treated every child as a gift from God. I also know, because there are words written about her in the history books, that just after turning 20 years old, she became only the second woman to be named Miss Universe. In the following years, she was to meet presidents, appear in Hollywood movies, and travel with Bob Hope entertaining troops across the globe. Apparently, when she came back to Ottumwa in August of 1956, people from all across Iowa came to see her, leaving no question in history that she is the most famous person to ever walk the halls of Davis Street Christian Church. Her full name is Carol Ann Laverne. Morris, and despite the limits of human memory, she deserves to be remembered as a gift from God. But as I mentioned before, without the capacity to really remember the past, the church members that raised me nearly 30 years later did a fantastic job of making me firmly believe that I was the most important human being, not just in that church or even on the planet, but perhaps even the whole universe. Don't get me wrong. These people were actual human beings with glaring imperfections. They fought at church board meetings, occasionally participated in rumors, and surely said the wrong things at times to each other. But as a youth growing up in the church, I felt treated as if I was a precious gift from God or at least an extra special visitor from another planet. Their love and belief in me has given me the courage to become the human being I've grown into. This is why this chapter and the stories contained within it are all about the adventures in that amazing community known as the Church on Davis Street. If all church teaches you when you are young is to recite the absolutes of today, then it is likely failing to prepare you to recognize the God you will meet when you are older. These are the words my youth director would gently whisper to me whenever I would try to assemble my faith like a puzzle with all the right pieces in all the right places. As a developing human being, I have always loved knowledge and found that if I studied something long enough and hard enough, I could fully understand it. I listened carefully to the preacher's sermons each Sunday and even took notes when the Sunday school teachers would explain the meaning of particular scriptures. However, the conclusion I came to after years of childhood research, was that the human beings in my church came to very few conclusions about God. Yet they seemed passionately dedicated to the task of teaching me to follow this same ambiguous God they were not always sure they understood. I did not know then just how different my journey in faith was going to be from the path of other humans humans who grew up in other churches on other street corners. We know what we know because we are limited by what we have access to know. Religious instruction was easier when people stayed in their neighborhoods and rarely mingled with other cultures. The assumption that all other churches were exactly like ours was amplified when, after deciding to become a minister, I was asked by an elder of the church, what denomination will you choose? Completely untethered and confused, I replied, well, Baptist, Presbyterian, or or maybe Assembly of God. I was not trying to be snarky or untrue with my response. It was just that I did not know what I did not know about other churches. I had only experienced God in the way people inside my home church taught me to experience the holy. In time, I would come to understand just how different my faith journey was from others. And it would all begin that day I learned that I really, I mean, really hate hot chocolate. I don't even remember now which one of my friends invited me to go on that church hayride. Yet I do remember them inviting me with a homemade coupon that vaguely resembled a dollar bill with a picture of a stylized cross in the middle instead of a dead president. On the front side it read, Come to our In God We Trust hayride. On the back was a picture of their church, Rising Sun Baptist Church, or maybe it was up on the Hill Assembly Church. Arching gently underneath the image of the church in perfect King James script was the phrase, you are a sinner, come find grace with us. I can still see nearly every detail of that coupon in my mind today, but back then, all I really saw was the word hayride. As a teenager, hay rides were the best chance for awkward boys like me to possibly sit by a girl for hours and pretend it was a date. Hay rides were part of nearly every church's fall calendar of activities. They took place in the mid to late October time, just as the weather turned cold enough to encourage everyone to sit close together, but not so cold that we needed to wear our bulky winter clothes, which would have prevented such closeness. At that age, I would have sold my soul for any chance to spend two hours in the twilight of an evening gently rolling along the back hollows outside of Otumwa, Iowa, while sitting next to a girl. Any girl. As it turned out, by the end of the night, I almost did. I have learned that human memory is at times completely unreliable for the absolute best reasons. As a storyteller, my memory of my long-ago years is often near photographic and full of details that most other humans cannot recall. However, at certain points of my journey on this earth, not only do the details fade away, but whole moments disappear, and what I am left with are a few fragments that linger in the dark. My memories of that night are just such a time when Fuzzy darkness is all I am able to retrieve from the story. The night began in the church parking lot with a speech on safety protocols and appropriate Christian behavior by a person who I presume to be the youth pastor of the church. I made this assumption because he looked like all the other youth ministers I had previously met, strong angular cheeks with hair that had once been full but was beginning to recede toward the center of his head. His identity was confirmed when, once we were all on the wagon and settled in for the ride, he took the opportunity to welcome everybody again and give a short 20-minute devotion about how human beings are born evil and sinful and therefore need to receive the grace of God. He even went so far as to make it clear that if we did not accept Christ into our hearts that very night and confess our sins, we were surely bound for hell. I know that he probably believed everything he said. And from his particular understanding of God, it was meant to be good news to us teenagers on that hayride. However, having been raised in a church that treated me like I was a gift from God and spent years teaching me how to share this same kind of love for all others I met, this fear-based religion only made me afraid. The thing that confused me most was not so much the words he spoke, but the fact that he said them while maintaining a polite and gentle smile. It was like listening to the words of Dante's Inferno, but with the music overlay of a Disney movie. My gut tightened, and I began to feel like I was trapped in another world. I'm sure now that what I was experiencing that night was a theological crisis, but the symptoms closely resembled that of having an inflamed appendix. This is where my memory fades. Or maybe it was just that the darkness of the night prevented me from seeing much more of that hayride. When I really concentrate on the memory, I have a few vague images of the lights from the neighborhood houses that slowly passed by. I can still almost feel the vibrations coming from the engine of the tractor as it pulled us along. But little more surfaces until we pulled back into the church parking lot and I heard the same youth pastor invite everyone into the fellowship hall for cookies and hot chocolate. We, 52 teenagers and 8 adults, filled into a space just larger than a small living room. The first thing that hit me was the extreme temperature change between the brisk autumn chill outside and the inside inferno made worse by the addition of each person's body heat. Curiously, the human body radiates an average of about 350,000 joules of heat per hour, which is equivalent to a standard 100-watt incandescent light bulb. If you've ever touched a light bulb after it has been left on, say for a two-hour hayride, not to mention the additional heat produced by teenagers in puberty, then you will have some idea of how hot that Fellowship Hall was that night. 60 human light bulbs in a compact space produces an experience not unlike the youth pastor's image of hell itself, which may well have been his final act of manipulation to save our souls that night. Instead, the result for me, at least, was a lifelong hatred of hot chocolate. With all of us crammed tight together inside that room, they began to pass around little plastic glasses of liquid chocolate sugar. The air moved like molasses, and the hot chocolate tasted like it had been made with curdled milk. As I took my first sip and thought about all that had happened that night, my body, and perhaps my soul too, convulsed to expel, well, everything, I began to feel like I alone was producing 30 of those light bulbs of heat and with sweat now dripping down my forehead, I leaned over and ejected everything from the center of my being. First came the hot chocolate, and then the bits of spaghetti I'd eaten at lunch that day. It all landed at the feet of my friend, whose name I have conveniently forgotten, and nearly in the back pockets of that youth pastor, who was still talking about how we were sinners and needed to be saved from hell. I don't know if it was due to us being Packed in so tight, or if the noise in the room prevented others from hearing the grunting sounds of my exorcism of the night's activities. But no one noticed. Even as I looked down and saw the oozing of hot chocolate spaghetti being squished around by shoes of every kind, I was able to move unnoticed through the crowd, out the door, and into my parents' awaiting car before anyone could save or steal my soul. This is why I hate hot chocolate. I mean, really hate hot chocolate to this day. It was also the moment I reaffirmed my love for a church, my church on the corner of Davis Street, that taught me how to love rather than fear the God I would follow during my destiny on this earth. This is yet another reason why I turned out okay in this life.